You're listening to Root Cause Remedies, a show that explores environmental justice from right here in Hawaii. I'm Tina Grandinetti, and I'll be your humble host and fellow traveler on this huaka'i to learn more about the issues that affect the lands, waters, and people that sustain us. Today, since 45 is in desperate need of someone to set him straight about the science around climate change, we're joined by Carly Rizzuto. Carly is our researcher here at Root Cause Remedies, and she's also a science teacher at Waianae High School. And she's going to help us break down some of Trump's lies and give us a quick lesson on the science and history that we need to see through the disinformation. Hi, Carly. Thanks for being here. Hey, Tina. Before we start, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I'm a science teacher and I research for our Root Cause Remedies team. I am originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and I also will say that I've been learning and upset about climate change for as long as I can remember. I completely feel you on that. Okay, so how do you want to do this? Uh, I know you have a couple of clips for us to listen to. Uh, Yeah, I do. So for this episode, I brought three clips that are quite honestly going to make us pretty angry. However, all three clips have not only received national attention over the last couple of months, but also they are explicit cases of our leadership using the process of disinformation to deny climate change and maintain systems of oppression. So after each clip, we can break down the confusing parts, the disinformation and the corruption. And luckily, I know you brought a final clip of AOC speaking at a climate conference in 2019 that can give us some life at the end. Yes, we will need it. Um, Just a heads up to all of you out there who can't stand hearing Trump's voice and his (laughs) rhetoric. We're with you. We're going to play a little bit, but it's for a good cause, we promise. (laughs) And how intense is it that I feel like we have to give a trigger warning before we play his voice. (laughs) Okay, so tell us about this first clip. Yeah, all right. So this first clip is from mid-September when Trump met with Governor Gavin Newsom of California and other state officials to discuss response efforts to the region spreading wildfires. But I think we want to work with you to really recognize the changing climate and what it means to our forests and actually work together with that science. That science is going to be key because if we if we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay. It'll start getting cooler. <laughs> I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> hey, well, I don't think science knows actually. Tom, please. Oh. Oh, that clip is so infuriating. Like, you can't just say that everything's Mm going to cool down. It's so painful, especially when we're thinking about the families that lost their homes or the native peoples of those lands that have been set literally ablaze because of colonialism and capitalism. Yeah. Okay, so Trump says science doesn't know. What does our resident science teacher say? Science knows a lot. We know that the Earth's atmosphere has gases that act like a blanket for the Earth. It is honestly freaking cool. They are called greenhouse gases. The ones that are most talked about are carbon dioxide and methane, but you've probably heard of others like water vapor, nitrous oxide, and ozone. These gases are up there in the atmosphere just doing their jobs. They are refracting and reflecting heat. 
insulating the Earth. But greenhouse gases are part of what makes the Earth a habitable planet, right? Before, um, in the 19th century, people began to observe increases in these gases in the atmosphere and study how they impact Earth's temperatures. So way back in 1856, female scientist Eunice Newton-Foot yes. observed how... <laughs> yeah, right? Um, observed how increases in carbon dioxide result in higher temperatures. Since then, scientists have been studying the history of Earth's temperatures and climate by looking at ice cores, coral reefs, sediments in the ocean, tree rings, and layers of rock. And when I say ice cores, I'm actually talking actual cylinders of ice from ice sheets and glaciers in Antarctica and Greenland. These ice cores have little air bubbles in them that allow us to observe the composition of atmosphere even 800,000 years back. It's really cool. And the Earth is an incredible record keeper, and that's why we're able to do this. And that's why the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, can say with confidence, scientific evidence for warming of the climate system is unequivocal. Mike job. That's right. <laughs> Donald Trump, science does know. Yes, you tell him, Carly. You it's so fun hearing you. You sound you sound like you'd just be the best science teacher ever. <laughs> like you genuinely are excited. Um, but what about the idea that the changes we're seeing are not being caused by humans? I doubt any of our listeners need convincing, but just to really stick it to Trump, maybe that's something we should cover. For sure. Um, we definitely want to debunk that. So scientists have learned that human activity is producing carbon dioxide at a rate 250 times faster than natural processes since the last ice age. So the Earth's average surface temperature has increased about 1.14 degrees Celsius since the late 19th century following the Industrial Revolution, a time that marks the beginning of large-scale manufacturing and extractive industries. Yes, we are talking the extraction of fossil fuels, oil, coal, gas, but don't forget that the Industrial Revolution produced large-scale profit-driven fossil fuel-powered industries of all types. So we are also talking agriculture, transportation, textile, and more. Mm. Um, yeah, so all these systems, it's imp important to know that all these systems are connected. So when Earth's average temperature rises just slightly, there are cascading effects. It's a big deal. Ice sheets melt, sea levels rise, precipitation patterns change, and the ocean wa oceans warm and become more acidic. Um, so on planet Earth, <laughs> it is difficult for really anything at all to happen in isolation. Small changes matter and they're amplified, leading to global, regional, and local effects. Uh, with climate change, we also observe more extreme and frequent weather events like hurricanes and more droughts and heat waves. In Hawaii, we will see more flooding events and rain patterns altered, level rise, bringing erosion, water pollution, changes in the surf, destruction of cultural sites, mm. and the displacement of communities that live close to the shorelines. This ecological de degradation that is coupled with climate change is also going to harm farmlands and native species and coral reefs and fish populations. So the warmer temperatures that come with climate change even increase our risk to zoonic diseases and vi viruses like the coronavirus. Mm. So what's important, too, after all this um, is that also these changes are happening now. So climate change is happening now. Right. And I think 
Another point, another thing to point out is that just 20 corporations are behind approximately a third of the Earth's total carbon emissions. 20, 20 corporations and four Western-based fossil fuel firms, Chevron, Exxon, BP, and Shell alone are responsible for emitting 10% of the Earth's carbon emissions since 1965. So when we're talking about human activity causing climate change, it's also, it's almost misleading to use that blanket term human because it kind of elides the fact that it's a very small, very privileged and extremely powerful group of humans that are doing Doing this and to really understand how the major emitters of greenhouse gases can be such a concentrated group, we have to trace mm-hmm. the responsibility back to the beginnings of colonialism and imperialism that started forcefully exporting capitalism and extraction on a global scale. Yeah, um, it's all connected. The climate denial we see Trump engage with today is strategic. Um, Frankly, climate denial is a way for the people who have benefited most from patriarchal and white supremacist systems to preserve the money and the power they grow from extractive industries and government practices. So these systems are built on exploitation. They cannot be what they are without significant inequality and social discrimination. Mm-hmm. Black and indigenous people killed, enslaved, displaced, women assaulted, entire neighborhoods sick from polluted drinking water, children with asthma from growing up breathing unhealthy air, workers subject to unjust and unsafe conditions, risking their lives every day. Intergenerational harm felt immediately, like in the now and over the long term. Contrast this systemic oppression and environmental harm with the safe jobs and healthy environments that disproportionately white and wealthy families enjoy. Um, This is environmental racism and it's why we need environmental justice and it's a huge part of what has caused climate change. By Mm -hmm. 2050, actually, um, over a billion people are projected to be displaced from environmental changes and civil unrest due to climate change. So climate change is a crisis, yeah. And, And still the fossil fuel industry and state leadership continue to place their own profits and power over human lives and a livable future. It it's really it's it's absolutely criminal. Yeah, and I think aside from denying the science of climate change, we're we're actually at a point in the crisis where if you're denying climate change, you're just fully denying people's actual lived experiences because so many people have already begun to feel the impacts of climate change on their everyday lives. Like you just said, like we know it because we see it and we feel it through our bodies and through the places where we live. So it's almost like the ultimate gaslighting. Yeah, um, for sure. And like, Instead of confronting climate change and the intergenerational harm that comes with it, the Trump administration has embraced climate denial and taken actions that worsen the well-being of people's futures. Like from taking the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement to removing the words climate change from government websites to disregarding indigenous people in advancing projects like the Dakota Access Pipeline. Also to rolling back nearly 100 environmental regulations and to most recently forcing the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice who poses a significant threat to the future of climate policy and social justice. Donald Trump has made it clear that his presidency and really his power is dependent on the support from the very corporations and industries and individuals that historically and presently exploit communities and environments for their own profit. And that's really, I think, why he's saying, I don't think science knows. It's just such a transparent way of saying, I don't care. Okay, so we could go 
on and on about this. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm, I think we're ready for clip number two. Okay. Um, th- yeah, this one is especially painful too. So uh, let's, let's hear it. Let's play it. I would, be a, I would be the greatest fundraiser in history. I'm president. So I call some guy, the head of Exxon. I call the head of Exxon. Hi, how you doing? How's energy coming? When are you doing the exploration? Oh, you need a couple of permits, huh? Okay. But I call the head of Exxon. I say, you know, I'd love to send me $25 million for the campaign. Absolutely, sir. Why didn't you? Would you like some more? And if I make the call, now people make the call, it's different, you know, but if I made the call, I will hit a home run every single call. I would raise a billion dollars in one day if I wanted to. Okay, it's just mind-blowing how Trump manages to be so explicit about his corruption, even though he built his 2016 campaign around this promise to drain the swamp. And here he is bragging about how easy it would be to cut deals with special interests. But I, I also think this is a good example of how Trump's rhetoric actually exposes long-standing issues within our political system. Because even though it's shocking to hear him brag about his relationship with fossil fuel companies, this kind of corruption isn't unique to his administration, right? I mean, the collusion between private interests and public policy is exactly the reason why we haven't seen the political will to create systemic change to stop the climate crisis. Yeah, yes. Yeah, the, the Trump administration is stacked with business insiders and lobbyists who shape policy to benefit the industries that they work for. The current head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler, is a former coal lobbyist of all things. Gross. Um, yeah. And like, there's no coincidences there. And with his leadership position, Wheeler has the power to appoint and hire many more people to the EPA. Like just one example, he hired a former oil and gas executive and current climate denier named Ken McQueen to an administrative position in the EPA. And this guy, McQueen, he's called climate change just part of the history of the world we live in, um, which now we know is not right. (laughs) Um, So like, His background in the fossil fuel industry and the lack of science-based perspective on climate change is not a coincidence. It is a part of why he got his job. But even so, even though Trump has been leading the political charge against science and facts, especially when it comes to climate change, he and his administration, they're definitely not the first lawmakers to be manipulated by lobbyists and private interests that are working against climate science and environmental justice. Yeah, this is really, really frustrating. Like, I think many of us are taught in school that in a democracy, policy is written to address the needs of the public. And Mm -hmm. when the public experiences problems, they can vote, they can organize, they can take other actions to receive the support they need from the leadership, which are like the lawmakers, the politicians. But however, like a democracy fails to function for the public, you know, for the people when politicians are in the pockets of corporations and the wealthy. I mean, there is nothing that legally prevents a candidate from running a campaign 100% funded by lobbyist pack from the fossil Mm -hmm. fuel industry, big pharma or like other private interests. And like once in office, policymakers can write legislation without running into conflict of interest laws. It's also completely legal for politicians to receive campaign funds from a private interest and then later hire individuals from that private interest into positions of power that, you know, like regulate and control their operations, just like we talked about with the EPA. This makes it really hard to regulate powerful fossil fuel corporations because They've gained immense influence over U.S. politics through this kind of 
coordinated or really just like coordinated lobbying effort. Um, mm-hmm. They've been directly responsible for funding climate change denialism for decades. Can you give us a few examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's take a deep dive into climate policy and a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. I learned from the How to Save a Planet podcast. It's so freaking good. Please check it out. I think it's helpful to know that environmental policy in the U.S. only really got going in the 1960s and 70s. So significant environmental policy was passed during the Nixon administration, like important Clean Air um, Act amendments and like the Clean Water Act and the creation of Environmental Protection Agency, too. That's super interesting that that all happened under Nixon, who was a Republican president. No. Um, yeah, I was surprised too, but apparently environmental policy was not always politicized or polarized the way it is now. Um, but in the 1980s, we got Ronald Reagan and, you know, one of his 1980 campaign slogans was, let's make America great again. Oh my God. It sounds very familiar. And I actually didn't know that that was just like a regurgitation of an old slogan. Yeah. All right. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But so like Reagan subscribed to a political ideology committed to government deregulation, cutting public spending and letting the market run free. And mm-hmm. yes, this changed a lot of people's perspectives on environmental protections. So more and more people, especially Republicans, especially conservatives, were placing private profits over human and environmental health more and more. In that same decade, 1980s, NASA scientists began testifying to Congress about global warming and the urgency for climate policy. But in response to that, um, in 1989, Exxon and other corporations formed the Global Climate Coalition, actually Mm -hmm. called the uh, Global Climate Coalition. And it was like a full-fledged lobbying group against action on global warming. They said that's environmental. Sad. That's yeah. I just realized that's the year that I was born. Like, oh. uh, I don't uh, know why that's so depressing. My thirtieth birthday is tomorrow too, so it's like, oh, well, or my thirty-first. <laughs> Sorry, that's but that's so, that's like actually just hit me that it's my whole lifetime that they've been keeping the truth from us or trying to. Yeah. Yeah, like knowing the truth and keeping the people mm-hmm. from it as much as they possibly can. Yeah, happy happy early birthday. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, so like it was called or it is called the Global Climate Coalition. And so they were there to say that environmental regulations were dangerous, even though big oil and gas companies, the people like a part of this coalition knew as early as 1968. So even before um, this coalition was formed, that their products would cause destructive global changes Mm -hmm. in climate. And instead of telling the truth and redirecting the course, they doubled down on their lobbying and launched a massive propaganda campaign to reframe climate science as inconclusive, um, known today as climate denialism. If they had just told the truth, we may not be having such an existential crisis that we're having around climate. Right. And the same sort of thing happened during the Clinton administration. In 1997, the fossil fuel industry launched another massive propaganda campaign, disinformation campaign against the Kyoto Protocol, which was the international treaty to lower emissions. And they actually wrote something called the Global Climate Science Communication Action Plan, which declared that victory will be achieved when those promoting 
the Kyoto Protocol's climate science, quote, will appear to be out of touch with reality. So essentially, they started this huge disinformation campaign with the goal of actually making climate scientists sound crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then like even shifting to recent history, uh, like around the time of the Great Recession, we saw efforts to pass legislation to implement a cap and trade policy. The first attempt really to put limits on emissions in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But of course, the uber rich Koch brothers funded the Americans for Prosperity political group to rally against the limits on greenhouse gas emissions, telling the public that it would increase the cost of heating their homes or fueling their cars. They really wanted people to think that fighting climate change would make their ways of life too expensive and just turn people away from environmental policy. And like what's upsetting too is that climate change is still not standardly like taught in our public schools. So how mm. are people even supposed to really learn about climate change? climate change and the real science of climate change. Right. Like long story short, the cultural rejection of climate change was devised, funded, and this is why the climate crisis like is a leadership crisis, is a leadership problem. Okay, we we actually need to do a whole episode or maybe a whole <laughs> season on climate change education in public schools and you can you can give us the inside scoop oh, on <laughs> <laughs> maybe we don't want to know it sounds like a real challenge too these disinformation campaigns are like fully next level evil it's like i can't even express my anger knowing that these people have so much blood on their hands and they know it and they're okay with it like when you said they're putting profits over people that's literal they literally know they're killing people and causing mass extinctions and making earth potentially unlivable and they'd rather rake up money and it's more money than they could ever even use in their lifetime and we have to deal with the consequences of that yeah it's twisted it's really twisted and what's hard is that they're it's not just that they're funding lies they're also funding half truths right like i looked at my carbon footprint the other day and that is a calculation of the greenhouse gas emissions you're responsible for in your individual daily life and yeah maybe that can be a helpful metric for figuring out how to make personal changes but then it was infuriating to learn that british petroleum bp actually devised the carbon footprint as a campaign to deflect from their own culpability the footprint thing is so frustrating. They know that they are largely responsible for this crisis, but their strategy to deflect our attention away from themselves and individualize the problem so they don't have to sacrifice their own profits is just like so real. They mm -hmm. care about exploiting individuals and marketing themselves as eco-friendly too, just to sell their products and like continue making profits. It's super twisted. We just, we have to like read our labels and pay attention <laughs> to the makers. Sustainability needs to be grounded in justice at all cycles, all levels. And like time after time, um, we learn that those who are contributing the very least to the climate crisis are the people that are paying the biggest costs, right? So like mm -hmm. the only finger we should be pointing is the middle one right at the fossil <laughs> fuel industry. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. And I, but I mean, propaganda for climate denial can only work for so long, right? Like we are all freaking pointing the middle finger <laughs> because we know as millennials and especially Gen Z, like 
we're refusing to accept this kind of disinformation because we know that this shit is already going to impact our lives and that our future is already like really scary and uncertain. Even polls in 2020, I try not to take the polls too seriously, but this one actually tells us something positive, that the majority of citizens believe climate change is an urgent issue that the government needs to address. So how should governments and leadership address climate change, especially when climate change doesn't impact all countries and communities and individuals the same way? (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, I think it's, A really good question and a really good segue, actually, to our third and final clip, um, because this one is from the presidential debate on September 29th. Um, And yeah, I'm sure we all remember it fondly. Let's take a listen. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's play it. We spend billions of dollars now on floods, hurricanes, rising seas. We're in real trouble. We make up 15% of the world's problem. But the the rest of the world, we've got to get them to come along. That's why we have to get back into the Paris Accord. All right, gentlemen. Wait a minute, Chris. So why didn't he do it for 47 years? We're supposed to be good. And by the way, the Green New Deal is $100 trillion. That is not not my plan. That's Green New Deal is not my plan. I'm going to rebuild everything. The Green New Deal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. First, like, I just want to react to that clip. (laughs) Oh, my God. Like, it's, it's, you know, Halloween's in a couple days. It has really felt um, like we are living in a horror movie. Um, I know. (laughs) I guess it's really hard to watch those debates. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. Okay. The Green New Deal. (laughs) So, yeah, it was proposed in 2018. um, And it's gotten so much press in the 2020 presidential election. And, like, in that clip, Trump claims the Green New Deal will cost $100 trillion, which, like, no, <laughs> misinformation. That's, like, five times the U.S. GDP, I'm pretty sure. So, like, he's, he's just saying numbers, trying to scare people. Just literally making up numbers. It's so crazy. Okay, but also in this clip, Biden seems pretty desperate to separate himself from the words Green New Deal, too. Yeah, totally. They both treat those three words like they're the boogeyman like I don't think anyone can come away from their conversation about the Green New Deal and about climate change response mm-hmm. actually knowing like what the Green New Deal is so I want to talk about it let's talk about it <laughs> yes please talk us through it okay so um the Green New Deal is a non-binding resolution so it's not a bill Um, Mm -hmm. It's a call for the U.S. to respond to climate change through a Great Depression era level response that centers social and economic justice in Mm -hmm. a 10 year. So 10 years um, in a 10 year national mobilization, the Green New Deal demands and quoting the resolution here to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions through a fair and just transition for all communities and workers. The Green New Deal acts, uh, asks for major federal investment into clean energy jobs and infrastructure, making it clear that we do this, and again, like quoting the resolution, to secure for all people of the United States for generations to come, clean air and water, climate and community resiliency, healthy food, access to nature, um, and a sustainable environment, and promote justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, communities of color, <laughs> migrant communities, 
deindustrialized communities, depopulated rural communities, the poor, the low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth. And that's a direct quote from the Green New Deal. That's awesome. That's pretty significant because it sounds like it incorporates a lot of the principles of environmental justice that we talked about in our first season. Like in our first episode, we talked about the environmental justice movement, which began in the late 1960s when people of color began pushing back against a disproportionate level of exposure to hazardous waste, air pollutants and chemicals. And here we are half a century later fighting the same environmental racism. Yeah, exactly. And like the New Deal from the 1930s left a whole lot of people out, like really it mostly benefited Mm -hmm. white Americans and ultimately was amplifying the socioeconomic inequality that has been growing and we see today. So like the the New Deal is not what we, we don't want that again. So like we have to be honest about that. And then like for this reason, the Green New Deal has to redistribute power and like center environmental justice, something that we need to demand now. And we need to demand this now. Um, Because, well, like a 2018 study conducted by the EPA showed that the national, state and county levels, non-white Americans are disproportionately burdened. Um, Mm -hmm. We still have these stark inequalities that continue to impact communities of color, and a lot of them are directly caused by fossil fuel companies. There's Cancer Alley along the Mississippi River where the predominantly black communities have been surrounded by oil refineries and petrochemical plants and are 50 times more likely to get cancer than the average American. Like happening in Houston, Houston, Texas, where the Hispanic population is disproportionately affected. And like even in California, we're one of the states with better progressive clean energy policy. So we think of it that way. Studies have shown that Black, Latino, low-income California residents are more likely to live near oil and gas wells that spew toxic pollution, and people of color are more likely to live among power plants, oil refineries, and landfills. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, the Green New Deal aims to rectify and reconcile the damage the government has done or allowed to have happened on its citizens. And, you know, like, reparations have long been a political dream, but now it's a priority if we demand it. Yeah. And even beyond reparations, we can actually demand that we start to reshape our economy in ways that benefit the planet and all of these historically and presently oppressed communities. Like one of the main conservative talking points against the Green New Deal is that it will cost too much to implement and like apparently a hundred trillion dollars, but also that it'll force people to sacrifice their way of life. But our current economy and our current way of life is based on extraction, the extraction of resources from the planet and the extraction of value from our lives. So talking about economic well-being in a system that's only working right when it's adding to the wealth of a select few at the expense of everyone else is kind of a non-starter. Even if we think within the metrics of capitalist economics, the Green New Deal is a win because the cost of the impending climate catastrophe will just far, far outweigh the cost of this initial investment in a more sustainable and less extractive economy. And then ultimately, the return on those investments is not only a transformed economy, but also hopefully a more equitable society and a livable planet, which seems pretty important. And like, that's why it's also important to know that the Green New Deal's urgent timeline, that 10-year mobilization, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's in alignment with the IPCC's 2018 report that projected we have 12 years, now 10, to prevent warming beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And remember, 1.5 degrees Celsius may seem small, but it's immensely dangerous for the Earth mm-hmm. and us. And that's why the term climate crisis has become more and more popularized by scientists, activists, and politicians who are pushing people to wake up to the urgency of climate change. That's why young people have been striking and screaming at adults in charge. If things yes. do not, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like if things don't change on a transformative, but also very achievable scale, like the Green New Deal and other policies and vision, young people won't have good jobs and a livable future. The climate crisis mm-hmm. matters also really because it will affect everyone and everything that matters to each of us. Like my students, they deserve so much more than what our society is giving them. And it's despicable that kids have to become activists in order to get leadership to just consider providing them even a healthy environment and a healthy life. But that all said, I guess like to, to kind of wrap up on the Green New Deal, um, Biden's plan is not the Green New Deal. He mm-hmm. um as he said in the Sadly. club, not, yeah, not supporting the Green New Deal. But don't get me wrong, like we seriously need Biden and his plan. It does include necessary progress toward lessening the effects of climate change. Biden's plan incorporates transitioning the U.S. to net zero emissions but by 2050, investing $2 trillion, um, yeah, $2 trillion in sustainable infrastructure over four years, and includes policies and initiatives for environmental justice. However, um, now knowing what the Green New Deal is, you can see how Biden's plan outlines a slower response and remains less transformational than what the Green New Deal argues we need to be. Yeah, it's super frustrating. You know, like we got to keep dreaming of alternatives, but also at least we're not fighting against somebody who's literally deleting the words climate change from government websites. Yeah, (laughs) we just got to start. We got to start with sort of like damage control, I guess. Yeah. And I think it like reminds us that we have to always be critical of politicians, like the ones we like, the ones we hate, Mm -hmm. the ones we're stuck with. They all work for us. And we have to demand that every single one of them is accountable to us, not to corporate interests. And they're not for not not um, just like accountable to us, but but they're accountable to future generations, too. Yeah. And I think that's a major shift that has to happen, that kind of intergenerational thinking and accountability. And that's something that indigenous cultures have been practicing, right? This idea that we're not just acting for us, but we're acting for our ancestors and for our descendants that are going to live in the world that we're creating for them. On that Mm -hmm. note, we can switch gears. And before we wrap up, I really wanted to share a clip of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's speech at the COP40 climate conference that really spoke to me very deeply. And in this speech, she's talking about the need for the Green New Deal. She's advocating for it, but she's also talking kind of beyond it, talking from the gut about what climate change really means to her on a personal level. So let's listen. Yes, okay. (laughs) Deeper still, we don't have to project one minute into our future to see that the climate crisis is already here. On this note, I speak to you not as an elected official or public figure but I speak to you as a human being, a woman whose dreams of motherhood now taste bittersweet because of what I know about our children's future and that our actions are responsible for bringing their most dire possibilities into focus. I speak to you as a daughter and descendant of colonized peoples who have already begun to suffer 
Just two years ago, one of the deadliest disasters in the United States struck in the form of Hurricane Maria. The climate change-powered storm killed over 3,000 Puerto Ricans, American citizens. None of this is a coincidence because climate change is not a coincidence or a scientific anomaly. Climate change is a consequence because it is unsustainable to organize our society as we have, centered on prioritizing personal gain and profit over any and all human or planetary considerations. And frankly, it is unsustainable to continue to believe that our system of runaway, unaccountable, law-breaking pursuit of, of profit, whose inequality is so socially destabilizing that it is giving rise to authoritarians who burn our forests and challenge the democracies that listen to basic science and to think that that has nothing to do with this. Yeah, I just want to listen to her forever and just follow mm-hmm. what she says every time I hear <laughs> what I want. Pretty heavy. We can't keep doing what we've been doing. We need to defund and decolonize like now. <laughs> We're hurting too many people. This is too, these, it's not okay. I would rather listen to your reaction. Honestly, I'm going to stop talking. It's hard for me <laughs> to put into words right now. Yeah, it's really heavy. I mean, for me as a woman of color from a colonized people. I, I like get teary eyed every time I heard that. I hear that speech. And the first time I heard it, I, I feel like I cried like a baby, but Mm. I think it's important to talk about here because it really highlights that the climate crisis is a product of the interlocking systems of white supremacy and capitalism and colonialism. And that the people who are going to be most impacted by it are the people who have already been the most impacted by these other forms of oppression. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like the most uplifting speech, but it is like in a way comforting to me because it acknowledges that these are really deep violences that have been enacted on the planet and on people for hundreds of years now. And they've spread across the earth through colonialism and imperialism. And that's kind of like the original disinformation in my eyes, the ways that Mm -hmm. these histories of oppression and resistance have been hidden from us to disempower us. And again, that's not a Trump thing. That's something that's been going on for generations. So it's not like the Green New Deal can just heal those wounds and fix everything. Not even close, but it's just an important first step to putting an end to this rampant extraction from our bodies and our lands and our lives. Like what you just said reminds me of an article I read that talks about how the confluence of the pandemic and the movements of Black and Indigenous peoples gives us a unique moment in history. The author wrote that historians, but quoting from the article, a point of bifurcation. Yeah, where we have, and then quoting here again, um, we really have the potential to denormalize a violent reality and take a turn towards a different world. I love that. And that's kind of like the only thing that can give us hope and keep us going through this crazy time. Yeah, and like, Because we've seen the Trump administration trying to capitalize on the pandemic since it broke out and with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett and the drastic EPA rollbacks, we need to stay focused and committed. Mm -hmm. Doing the work um, to radically mobilize a population that has been continuously lied to and indoctrinated and fed disinformation definitely won't be easy. We have to work alongside communities getting hit the hardest by climate change, by COVID, and by all 
of the systems rooted in capitalist exploitation, racism, sexism, and colonialism. When we begin to really like reprioritize social and environmental needs to be at the forefront, build an economy that uplifts Black lives, Indigenous lives, and people of color, we can reimagine a system beyond what um, that upholds the inequitable and unjust status quo, the policies, the rhetoric, um, or like as we know it, bipartisan electoral politics. Yes, it's so true. We just got to keep going. Um, And I guess it's no surprise that the moral of this episode is just the same as every other episode. (laughs) We got to center the people that are most impacted. We got to uplift those voices, our voices. But yeah, Carly, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this heavy stuff during a really heavy time as we approach the election. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Happy Halloween. Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, vote and organize. In the four years that Trump has been president, he has gone out of his way to delegitimize science, delegitimize um, marginalized communities, and delegitimize movements that have shaped social justice as we know it today. Like this blatant apathy framed as unorthodox charisma is really just white nationalist mm. fascism at play. The Whoa. clip, yeah. <laughs> the clip <laughs> we just played tell us a lot about how climate change and COVID are interconnected which is like one of our themes of our, or the theme of the season. And mm-hmm. while there are so many complex components to this conversation, one thing is clear. Climate change and COVID are both issues exacerbated by leadership negligence. So yes, vote. If you can vote, 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 um, vote because so many experience voter suppression or just simply do not have the right to vote are usually the most marginalized and deemed as expendable. But mm. as you cast your ballot, remember that we have to keep fighting to shift the system that so that next time we don't have to choose between a fascist leader and a moderate. Like we want a system yeah. where we can vote and feel empowered because we're voting for the needs of our communities within a system that works to uplift us all and for our collective liberation. Sometimes that feels a long way off. But then at the same time, I feel like I have moments where I think we're getting closer. We're getting there. Yeah, yeah, it does. Like, um, But I think plans like the Green New Deal and defunding the police are achievable goals that keep us vigilant mm-hmm. toward an alternative future that rebuilds all webs of life, including people, planet, like microorganisms, uh, like you. <laughs> and the meantime, we have to keep fighting to de-normalize like this violent reality and keep consciously unlearning and relearning and reshaping a future that we desperately need. And that's exactly why I'm so grateful for educators <laughs> like you who are doing helping helping young people unlearn and relearn. And I think that's probably a perfect way to wrap up and just say thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you so much for the work that you do every day. <laughs> and even though people don't hear your voice on every episode, you're working on every episode so thanks for all of that (laughs) thank you tina oh and like thank you for (laughs) letting me talk about climate change (laughs) and and like thank you people listening and to all of our listeners out there remember to drop off your ballot it's uh, it's too late to mail in and take care of your hearts over the next couple of weeks it's no matter what the outcome is it's gonna be tough we're in this together and the fight doesn't stop yeah um and like also if you can 
speak up for the things you care about and don't be afraid to organize. Um, I have a quick plug before we end. Yes. <laughs> there will be a march on November 7th at 10 a.m. starting at Alamoana Park in Honolulu. It's called the People's Alignment March and we will be marching for justice no matter who wins the elections. So keep an eye on our Root Calls Remedies Insta page because I'm sure that we're going to share some more of the details on there and like where to go to find the info. Perfect. I love ending on an action, an invitation to action. (laughs) Um, Thanks again, Carly. And thanks to all of our listeners. Take care and stay rooted. Mm -hmm.